This podcast provides a platform for our guests to express their own personal views and opinions. Some or all of these views and opinions may not be shared by Ben and or Yoel. Welcome to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. The podcast where we highlight stories of dads on the other side of divorce. To inspire and give strength to dads going through it. I'm Ben. And I'm Yoel. Welcome back to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. We're available on twodadtoquit.com. Two Dad to Quit on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And please don't forget to share, follow, like, rate the podcast. It's very important to make sure that the message gets out to as many people as possible. And we're here to share your story. This week, we are sitting with Joe Templin. Joe is a, <laughs> a ball of energy. Um, I've never met somebody who can kind of uh, rival my sleeping habits. Uh, He's also super smart, super talented. Um, He's written a book. He's a martial artist. He's a marathoner. Um, He's just, you know, (laughs) those are just some of the things that he does. Uh, And he's uh, very well thought out, methodical. um, And he has a lot of insights to share about life, kind of getting your life in order and, and doing, doing things that uh, make you the most productive as possible. Yeah, uh, the, the thought of uh, the Tasmanian devil ca- came to mind, Ben, when you said that. And uh, you also hit the nail on the head because I was going to say he totally reminded me of you. I, I, you know, in terms of a guy who just packs into 24 hours uh, what the average person maybe would need a week for. Um, so you and him definitely have that in common. And yeah, he was just a really high energy guy, really uh, devoted, persistent, devoted to his craft, devoted to his, uh, his family and um, really getting the most out of life. And I really enjoyed speaking to him. And I'm sure our audience will uh, will have a great time listening to what he has to say. Yes, and he's also a uh, father of special needs children, uh, which we also talk about. And uh, it's it's really some really good insight in there for anybody that does have special needs kids and, and the struggles that go with uh, raising a special needs child. Um, and it's very, very important uh, to understand, uh, you know, you gotta go the extra mile and, that's what definitely what he's doing. Today, we are here with Joe Templin. Joe divorced in 2022 after 20 years of marriage. He is the father to three kids, two with special needs. Joe is the author of Everyday Excellence, an ultra marathoner, unrepentant geek, and an international martial arts champion. He has been called a human Swiss Army's knife which is funny because that is exactly how I describe what I do at my day job when people ask me. So it was cool to see someone else that actually thinks of themselves the exact same way. So welcome, Joe. Uh, We're honored to have you on here and want to hear all about these crazy uh, hobbies you have and and achievements you've made. So thank you for bringing me on, guys, and for the listeners. It is at the end of an incredibly long day and long week for me, and it's early, early morning for Ben and Yoel, so none of us are at 100%. We're probably a little punch drunk, so we'll probably be very entertaining. (laughs) Very good. All right. Awesome. So we'd like to start out a little bit, you know, getting your background and, and what makes you Joe and what makes you tick and from your early days till till kind of now and uh yeah you know you've 
Okay, so many, this is gonna, many roads. So we want to we want to hear all of them. This is pretty meandering because that is how a lot of the best stories are, and that's how life very often is. But there's actually some arc to the story in that it does make sense in some ways, which is really interesting. So I'm the second of six kids. Grew up in uh, farm country in upstate New York. My hometown did not have a traffic light until after I was out of grad school, so people understand how small it is. Uh, I went into a parallel park next to a cow, just so that people really get a good understanding on it. Uh, My mom, the nun, yes, my mom was a nun before she had six kids, and my dad was former military. And we grew up uh, out in the hinterlands, and I was severely, severely asthmatic as a child. So I do these ultra marathons and martial arts and all this other crazy stuff. I am not an athlete. I am a mathlete. I'm a hardcore nerd. As you can see, my uh, title is head geek. I'm an unrepentant geek. I got my comic book stuff back there. So that's just who I am and everything. And when I was like eight years old, I think, is I told my mom I wanted to learn everything there was to learn. So she's like, there's the encyclopedia, get reading. This is in the days before Google. If we had Google, I'd never have left my room. Uh, as I said, I was severely asthmatic when I was 10, I died. Um, you got to give more than that. Well, to quote my Python, I got better, but yeah, I mean, so, uh, back in those days, they didn't have the puffers and stuff like that. So if you were having an asthma attack, you'd go to the doctor's office and they'd give you like adrenaline and, or they'd put you in the hospital in the, uh, oxygen tents and stuff like that. So I'm lying there on the table, having trouble breathing. Looking and sounding like, you know, a gasping, dying fish, because that's essentially what I was. And all of a sudden, I started flowing out of my body, and there's a bright light, and I could, I, my chest was no longer tight, and it looked like Doc Murray turned into an octopus. All these extra arms, he's going like this, and my mom's freaking out. And all of a sudden, I hear the big, deep voice, like uh, James Earl Jones, it's not yet time, and bang, backed out of my body, and, you know, <clears throat> and they took wow. me to the hospital. And yeah. from all that, is the reason that I'm like this. Uh, my friends said that I burned the candle at both ends and in the middle of a flamethrower, and that's pretty much a good assessment mm-hmm. because we have 86,400 seconds a day or 1,440 minutes, and I try to get the most possible out of it. Wow. So I started college at 13 because my parents said 12 was too young. Um, I <laughs> ended up playing junior Olympic volleyball. I ended up uh, getting into running. I was the mascot in college, so yes, I lettered in cheerleading, I uh, got multiple degrees, I was an applied physicist, worked for the government, family issue, uh, Godfather died unexpectedly, so I went into financial planning, I started learning all about psychology because of all these different things, uh, eventually went on my own, was doing consulting, wrote books, did some work in Intel, consulting, writing, speaking, all that, and that's how we got to where we are today. Wow, I need a breather. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of breath. <laughs> it's funny because when I went to college and people asked me what I wanted to be or what I wanted to major in, and my answer was always, I want to major in everything. But that wasn't an option. So, Well, you can't major in everything, but you can always try to learn everything. And that's why I say I'm an autodidactic polymath as opposed to a Renaissance man because I can't draw a straight line even with a ruler. Uh, I did not get the artistic ability, unlike my brothers and sisters. My mom was very artistic. Uh, So I have this just 
insatiable need to learn. I'm constantly trying to understand new things. I'll explore, I'll go down the rabbit holes in very many ways. But I also try and take all these different concepts and be able to assemble them in interesting manners or to be able to derive insight into different components from knowing other things. And so between physics and martial arts, you actually get a really good basis to be able to look at many things in the world. And as I say, physics and philosophy and psychology and poetry are all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to explain the world in, through different lenses. So having these different ways of trying to understand and process and interpret, then to explain gives me an advantage, it feels like in a lot of ways, because it allows me to speak from different perspectives or to use different voices to try and communicate with other people. One of the side effects of being so ADHD, yes, I'm ADHD adult diagnosed. When we were kids, they didn't mm. diagnose this, which is probably a good thing, um, is that, yes, I am too much. I mean, my ex-wife, you know, who actually went to college, was a couple of years behind me and knew me uh, through the fraternity sorority system before we started dating, was like, you don't stop. You never turn off. Your, and your expectations are too high. So that's one of the things as a dad, I have really worked hard on to try and not hold my kids to the same standard because I don't want them to have to try and like outshine me. And I don't want them living in my shadow either. I want them to be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Hmm. So, wow. so what would that look like, Joe, when you, when you say that, like, can you give, can you give our audience an example of, you know, when you, you're intentional about not trying to put too much pressure on them in that way? So, like, as I said, I started college when I was 13 and uh, oh. I didn't want my kids, you know, my kids know I started college at that age and everything, but it was, I never pushed them. I just, you know, they had to do their homework. That was something that there was no debate on. Okay. You do your homework, you do your stuff and you turn it in, you do your chores and things like that, but I'm not going to push them. I let them explore different things. So uh, my oldest, uh, for a while wasn't doing his homework and all that and so he got in trouble and then all this stuff and so i tightened down on him and i'm like you gotta do the homework and go to school those are the only two things beyond that there's not much requirement but he started getting really into robotics when he was like 14 years old and um they have the robotics competitions and he's mm -hmm. been the chief programmer for the past three years he's getting ready to graduate high school later this year he's already doing consulting work for one of the major tech uh, companies uh, wow. locally. He's doing uh, machine learning. He's already got a mentor at RPI, one of the professors. And he's got, his plan is to do his associate's degree, then go to RPI or one of the other schools to finish his bachelor's degree. But he's got the opportunity potentially to get some good scholarships. And it's like, this is a field that I had no interest in, never explored, didn't even exist when I was younger. Okay. And he, he found it and he's going deep into it because he wants to. And I'm not pushing any of the other kids into it. The youngest mm -hmm. one is doing robotics too, but he's much more on the mechanical side as opposed to the programming side. So he's probably going to be a mechanical engineer with his fascination with the Titanic and stuff like that. My middle one's a musician, artist, and mathematician. So mm -hmm. that's where your skills are lying. That's where your interest lies. Go for it. What can I do to support it? And they know that more important than their grades, I care about their effort and their attitude. 
So mm-hmm. when they're telling me about what's going on with a competition or other things that they're doing, uh, how their report cards are, they know the question. How was your effort? How was your attitude? What can I do to support you to make those things better? And they're smart enough that they're going to succeed in some capacity. But this way they can develop into the people that they are with good constraints around them so that they have some good models, but they can become the best versions of them that's possible. Nice. And when you said that you were kind of happy they didn't diagnose ADHD back then, what did you have, what did you mean by that? Because if I had been like put on all sorts of medications that they put kids on, you know, recently, it mm-hmm. would have damped things down. So, you know, uh, having this, you know, my motor does not stop in a lot of ways. Just and my youngest is ADHD also. Um, so just having this high rev motor that you're constantly going, if it can be focused as opposed to being disruptive, then it can be highly, highly productive. So as I was saying earlier, you know, you have 1,440 minutes a day. You know, for me, about 400 of that is resting, sleeping, recovering, stuff like that. I try to screw around for 40 minutes or less per day so I can have a full thousand minutes of productivity and I multitask wherever it makes sense. So for example, I'll be working out and listening to a podcast. If I'm driving to or from the office, I'm either listening to an audio book or I'm on a conversation with a client. You know, so if I'm preparing dinner, I'm also supervising homework and doing other things. So I want to get as much usage as possible out of every single potential second. Mm-hmm. And if they had put me on medication as a kid, I would, it clamps you down a lot of ways. It overloads you and slows you down so that I can't have the capacity to switch gears and multitask like this. Um, but it also has some of those other side effects that make it so that uh, you cannot perform at such a high level. So my youngest son needed it because um, it took the edge off and he was disruptive beyond belief, whereas mm-hmm. I was just high energy. And maybe it's because, you know, I had parents that weren't afraid to beat me if I was out of line what, too much. <laughs> what, but, number uh, were, what number kid were I was you? number two, and I definitely okay. have second son syndrome. I am, I have an Irish twin and for your listeners who are not familiar with that, it's, uh, he's under 12 months older than I am. Mm, right. Got it. Interesting. Wow. So, so it's, I'm just, you know, some, a lot of our listeners now are going through what you're explaining and that decision, you know, do we medicate, do we not medicate? And I and find it, it's, I have a belief in that you should have the minimal government and the minimal medication as possible. Okay. So the minimum amount of regulation, you know, people are going to screw up and get hurt. That's part of life. You know, you can't Mm -hmm. bubble wrap and protect everybody. And in fact, if you do that, then you actually weaken people because they don't develop resilience. They don't develop the ability to overcome. They don't develop the ability to have pain, suck it up and keep going. So having the minimal amount possible, is a recipe for success overall. So the minimum amount of government, the minimum amount of medication. So like with my youngest son, um, we started with an incredibly low dose because he was just like as thin as a rail. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we started with like five milligrams then we went up to 10, then we went up to 15 and that was too much. So we came back down to 12 and a half and that's how we settled on his dosage for a while. And Mm -hmm. it wears off through the day. So by like six o'clock, he's you know, becoming a little crazy. So we have to 
pay a little bit more attention at like Boy Scouts and stuff like that to keep them focused for that last little bit. But we want him to still be able to have an appetite and we want him to be able to continue to be himself. And on the weekends, he doesn't have to take it. So because it's a very short cycle thing, so mm -hmm. it's out of his system anyway. So it's not like he's ramping up and ramping down. So this allows him to then have the full freedom, but he needs to learn how to self-regulate that because the goal is eventually that right. he's either completely off it or he self-medicates with coffee like I do. <laughs> and how did your teachers deal with you? And so I had a couple of teachers that were absolutely horrible. I had one tell me that I'd never amount to anything. Uh, and in second grade, I said, I don't need to learn how to write because eventually we're going to have computers just take our words and write for us. This is 1976, <laughs> by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I was right. They're wrong. Um, yeah. But I, what the good teachers did is they found out that if you can give me something interesting, challenge me, because I am literally addicted to challenge. It is mm -hmm. one of my biggest faults and strengths. And so if you would give me something that was really interesting, really just at the edge of my capability, I would achieve the state of flow and I would really work on it. So like when I was in sixth grade, I was assigned that I had to read the New York Times every single Sunday, including the magazine section, and have a book report on Monday for it. Nice. for a, you know an analysis and so mm -hmm. it you know i had a lot of capability but it hadn't been focused and so this caused me to start focusing it and i didn't really um like learning i didn't like reading for learning educational purposes before that you know i never liked reading long form stuff for a while but then suddenly it clicked i really got into it the same way that my youngest son has and so it's like it was just like non-stop in fact I would get in trouble, so I'd be sent to my room because that's where the books were. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you would get like, in trouble on purpose to get to the books? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and my older brother, too. So finding those things that you become interested and you can develop the deep passion around, that's what's going to cause you to almost hyper-focus and pursue it. Mm -hmm. And so like my youngest had that with the Titanic and with a bunch of other things. So finding these things that allow them to um use it in a positive manner and just go really deep on it and then you just have to regulate around it like you have to remind them hey buddy you have to eat at some point you can't just sit there and read books all day or you yeah. have to like you know go outside and actually run around like a normal kid because that's mm -hmm. important to your growth and development and you know you actually have to interact with other human beings because that's sort of important too so giving them basically some guidelines and parameters around it. But then within those wide guidelines, I let my kids run wild within it. It's like, here's the rules. Here's the bumpers. Right. Anything within there, that's fine. Go nuts. Right. And that leads me to my next question, which is, I feel like nowadays kids are staying home much more and, and getting involved in sports much less. And I think yep. that, that, you know, it sounds like you, you did participate, um, but there's a lot of like individual sports that are being pushed or yes, as skill sets team sports. as opposed to teams and, and kids are learning are not learning. You know, I grew up playing sports all year round, whatever yep. was in season, I was in it, but it taught me like failure, overcoming, trying again, working as a team. Don't yeah, blame those people. are all like, the lessons that kids and, need. And with the solo sports that have become much more prevalent, uh, they're losing out a lot of that. Now, 
video games actually make sense in terms of team building in some ways where they're working together and hey you gotta cover my sex and things like mm-hmm. that but again you don't want to go to extremes with that you need to have a multiplicity of exposures so that you're getting the physical activity you're getting individual reliance whether it's running or martial arts or things like that but you're also getting the team components of doing other things and so learning to be a good individual but also a good teammate is Mm -hmm. a balance and the pendulum swings back and forth over time and hopefully it's starting to swing back a little bit more towards the interactive and learning to be part of a group or team yeah i definitely think the last you know the lockdowns did not help any of that Um, and and it was especially bad on special needs kids because they lost all their support services and they lost their structure so with kids who have adhd or autism they need that structure to basically give them the signals as to what they're supposed to do and how they're interacting things like that Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you know there was no cub scouts there was no taekwondo there weren't these things that were both outlets and learning opportunities for them and so we're going to see effects from this for 30 40 years yeah i couldn't agree more um and i know you mentioned that you're a special needs father um i'd love to hear more about that and and how that kind of changed your fathering. I don't, were the, your special needs kids, which number? I know there's three kids. Do they come the later? Oldest earlier? and the youngest are okay. uh, both on the autism spectrum. The oldest, Asperger's. He wasn't diagnosed until uh, a year and a half after my youngest oh, was wow. diagnosed. He was diagnosed at five and a half, six years old with mm-hmm. autism and ADHD. And plus he had like really bad eyesight and he had sensory issues. So oh. it, basically think of, a drunk hyper toddler in Vegas. That's what it was like trying for him. And so yeah. we had to learn these techniques of controlling and slow him down and stuff like this. And, you know, so like he'd wear like a weighted blanket in school. Mm-hmm. He had like the headsets at times, had to give him glasses. You know, he had to learn all these different techniques and how to deal with it. And he had the social worker and he had the psychologist working with him. He was in an 812 classroom, which is a small classroom with the aides. Mm-hmm. And over time, they started to mainstream him so that he would go out to the class for the right. subject matters mm-hmm. because he's incredibly intelligent, absolutely right. incredibly intelligent. He's got a brilliant mathematical mind and spatial recognition. And uh, so getting him out into those uh, classrooms, but then back in for the controlled environment so that he could reset because his emotional energy reserves drop very quickly. So over time, he was spending more and more time in it. Now he's in middle school and he's fully integrated at this That's point. Great. He still has issues and stuff. And in fact, um, my ex-wife's never going to hear this. So she still actually completely denies that he's special needs. I mean, she's in complete and total denial of that and a whole bunch of other things, which is part of the reason why I'm a divorced dad, not a married dad. Uh, but my oldest at 14 years old actually tried to kill himself. Wow. So I had to check him into the mental hospital. And from that day forward, he hated me, literally mm-hmm. hated me. And he's also uh, bipolar and has a couple of other issues on top of being Asperger's. And it's taken literally four years for him to even relate to me at this point now he's a senior in high school worse we actually have a normal relationship for a high school senior and their father <laughs> uh, as opposed to the completely adversarial one that we had for years right well, i'm glad my middle one is supposedly my neuronormal one but he's my mini me so 
<laughs> but he's artistic. But he's artistic. He's incredibly artistic. He has curly red hair. He, uh, he his name's Liam, uh, so he looks like the perfect little leprechaun. And you know, mm -hmm. he also decided he was going to found a cult in his uh, in his school at eleven years old. So he had all these other kids paying him tribute and calling him great leader and things like this. So he's normal, oh but <laughs> our normal's a little different. <laughs> wow. What's your custody uh, situation with the kids? So the oldest is 100% with my ex-wife. I have no control over him. I can't even sign paperwork for him. So like, I couldn't sign for him to take the SATs or anything like that. The other two, we have split custody. I gave her the house that uh, the kids grew up in so that the kids could have stability, especially mm -hmm. for the special needs ones. Mm -hmm. So same bus line, same uh, rooms, same everything. Uh, she travels a lot for work uh, because of the company that she works with. So she, uh, before COVID hit, she was on the road three to four weeks out of the month. So wow. literally, she was never home. And I solo raised these kids for five years before then. She's got primary custody because she's got the guaranteed stability and the um, insurances, which in the United States is a big, important thing, having health insurance. And the, so I just like gave her the home and everything. And uh, I have the kids... Uh, part of the weekends, but we have scouts two nights a week. So I have the, the younger two for that. Um, I'm the one who still takes them to most of their other things, like whether it's robotics or lessons or things like that. So mm -hmm. even though technically they live with her and I'm paying her, which is annoying, um, I <laughs> actually still have the primary influence and the most time spent with them. Mm, got it. And as far as, you know, any of our listeners that do have kids with learning disabilities, do you have any advice? Because, you know, a lot of these guys were not the primary person they were working or whatever it is, but now they have shared custody, some custody or whatever it is. And I'm sure that adjustment of, you know, having to deal with it one-on-one -on -one without other help. Um, yeah, I think there's no advice... support structure around, which yeah. can be a major problem. And for me, it was different because I did, I basically raised my kids right along. Mm -hmm. um, I moved my work schedule to be able to take care of them. You know, I'd go run at four o'clock in the morning while they were still sleeping or 11 mm. o'clock at night. So I would, I did all those sort of things. But the most important thing is that interact with the kids at their level, but above. So, you know, if your kid's six years old, you got to remember, they are six years old. They're in kindergarten or first grade. You know, they're going to be interested in dinosaurs. They're going to still be learning how their body works. You know, they're going to be having all these issues. So you need to be able to interact with them and come down to their level. Literally, if need be, one of the things I learned as a scoutmaster is if I'm talking with one of the young kids, I get down on one knee. So I'm eye to eye with them. But the other thing is that you have to remember, you're not their friend. You're their father. And my kids know this. I'm not your friend. I'm your father. My job is to put bread on the table, to grow and develop you to a independent leader who can take care of yourself and serve society and protect others. So I need to develop you. I need to grow you. I need to make sure you're growing stronger physically, mentally, and emotionally. So I'm going to push you a little bit, never too hard, but I'm always going to be making you get a little bit better because that is part of my responsibility as your father to get you so that you don't need me, but want right. to have me around. Mm. 
So having that balance of, yes, they are kids, and so they need to be treated as kids, but also they are developing to become adults. And so you need to give them a model and a pathway to that. Hmm. Okay. And did you treat your kids differently because of it? Um, and I guess- Because of their special I'll needs or- Yeah, I'll expand on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I took some parenting courses and, and one of the things they kind of, the, the central focus was kind of your kids understand what's okay and what's not okay you don't have to tell them a thousand times they know it you said it once they really know it and so you stop should model it you know you yeah, expect for sure them. i mean if you want them to pick up their dishes you need to pick up your dishes for if sure you want them to be respectful to other people you need to model that so that they see it and they adopt it so for that's sure. more important than getting on a soapbox and lecturing or trying to mm -hmm. teach them is show them through who you are for sure. Um, and one of the one of the classes started off showing a video of like a woman who had no arms and she used her feet for cooking, cleaning, driving. Mm -hmm. And the whole point was there's no excuses. Like when your kid says, I can't do it, I'm too and I'm too hungry, I'm too this, I'm too that. It's more of these are the rules. This is how the house works. You need to work as a functioning human being. You're gonna be tired, you need to eat, you're gonna yeah. be you're going to be tired. Actions you don't want to wash consequences. the dishes. If you don't do your homework, you're not going to go do fun stuff. If you don't eat your food, you're not getting dessert. I mean, there's that and being consistent with it. But there's an old principle. I think it came from Montessori. And it's also applied uh, not just in terms of teaching kids, but also with people in uh, rehabilitation where they're recovering from injuries and stuff like this is never do for somebody what they can do for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I tell my kid, if my kid says, oh, I'm too tired, I can't do it. I'm like, your legs aren't broken. You know, I picked that from my mom, obviously. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, you can do it. I will help you. I will give you the little bit of assistance so that you can, you know, if it's just at the edge of your capability, I can make sure that you're right. But you mm -hmm. keep doing that and reinforcing that. And I believe you can do this. I can help you. you know, come on, let's do this together, whatever it is. And they grow into their capacity and their confidence around those sort of things. So, um, now my kids are at an age where the older two can cook dinner once or twice a week. So that's a, a helpful thing. The youngest one is learning to make, at this point, he can make pasta, he can make eggs, he can do things like that. But he also just finished his cooking merit badge with Boy Scouts. So the expectation is going to amp up a little bit and amp up a little bit more. And other things like if they miss the bus and I had to take them to school, you know, it was one thing if they were four years old, you know, when they're 14, it's very different. And so, all right, I'll drive you to school because it's raining out and, you know, 33 degrees and nasty, but that's a half hour of my time. You're going to pay me for my time. You're mm -hmm. not going to pay me monetarily, but you're going to do X chore. Because I'm losing a half hour of my business time, my life. You're going to do that chore so that I don't have to do it. And that's going to give me my half hour back. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm having the same conversations with my kids uh, nowadays as they're getting older. Um, they keep dropping the line. Why do I'm too tired. I'm too hungry. And I just look at them and I said, my job is to make sure that you can function outside of this house since you're a functioning adult. Yeah. And uh, this is what we got to do. Otherwise you're never going to make it. Exactly. Um, and one of the things we learned in the fraternity was 
poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. And my kids have heard that for years. So, oh, you forgot your sneakers for gym class. Sorry. That's yeah. a you problem, not a me problem. And after it happens once or twice, guess what? They double check and they make sure they have their shoes because they don't like the consequences on it. Right. We'll get there. Now it's like my oldest, when she goes to the bathroom, she doesn't check for toilet paper. And then it's like, help, help, I'm heat from stuck right And I'm like, I got to do the dishes. I got to cook the food. Uh, just I'll, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Just, just hang think out. 10, just think <laughs> half an hour ahead. You're going in for a shower. What do you need on your toe with the shower? So this is this is where I'm at. But uh, yeah, I believe we'll get there. It's like, you know, just tell them, like chess. Because my kids like chess. Okay, mm -hmm. you're thinking what? Three moves ahead, five moves ahead. You know, so... Think ahead. If you're going in there, what do you need? You're going to need X, Y, and Z. Double check them before you jump in the shower. Yeah. Mm. So that that's where that focus is. So let's let's get into the the marathoning. When did you start running at four in the morning? Was that um, so I ran my first marathon right before my thirtieth birthday because it was one of those things that I said if I don't do it before I turn thirty, I'll never do it. So I ran my first one then, I ran my second marathon a year later, and that's why I swore I would never run another marathon, because I hate it. You know, I'd get bored being there for four hours running, plus, you know, the time before, all the training, you got to, you know, sleep more, which is something that I didn't really enjoy. You're sacrificing mm -hmm. stuff, you can't go out and have fun with your friends, which I don't do anymore, because I'm a divorced dad, but, um, you know, <laughs> all these sacrifices that you had to make. So I'm like, all right, I'm done doing marathons, I'll do half marathons, they're fine. Then a couple of my buddies from high school called me and they're like, hey, Template, we got something crazy. You in? I'm like, yes, what is it? Uh, they're like, okay, so you're going to do this thing. It's called a Ragnar. It's a 200-mile team race. I'm like, wait, mom, I'm running 200 miles? They're like, no, you only have to run about 16 miles. You run you know, uh, one leg of it, so it could be anywhere from three to seven miles. Then you sit in a van and you hang out with other stinky people while other people run. Then the other van runs and you get a chance to sleep on like the floor of a school or something like that. And then you run again and then you repeat. So you run three different times with over a 36 hour period. And oh. it's typically point to point And, you know, you just hand on off and you get Stockholm syndrome in the van and all this other stuff. I'm like, yeah. that's insane. Let's do it. So I did wow, it. Nice. Did my first one and uh, got hooked. And then the, ne the next year I did five. Um, and then the next year I did like four or five. And so I got really into doing that. And so I was doing a lot of those in addition to the Taekwondo and the other stuff. And literally that was my only break from my family was going away for that two days to go running. So other people like they go away on for, to get away and they rest and relax. No, no, I, I slept on barn floors and ran way too long and, you know, did crazy things. But during COVID, all the races got canceled. So mm -hmm. my running team said, hey, we got to do something crazy so we don't go insane. So we did like a moon night uh, 5K. And then we did like, you know, remote uh, beer miles. And we did a Ragnar where we were actually mailing the slap bracelet uh, back and forth. And then we did virtual ones where you had to text the next person up. We're like, oh, hey, wow. let's do a backyard uh, ultra marathon. I'm like, okay, what's this? It's like every hour, you commit to a certain distance, one, two, or three miles. And every hour on the hour, you go out and you run that distance. And we do it over and over and over again. I'm like, okay, cool. And I thought it started at 5 a.m. For some reason, it started at 9 a.m. I committed to three miles uh, per. 
So I'm out there and it was like 88 degrees that day or something crazy. So I go on out and I uh, finished the first marathon, the first 26 miles at about noon. And I go out and do more and more and everybody's dropping out because it's so hot and nasty out. And so I'm like, all right, I'm at 40 miles. I'm, I'm just going to stretch this to double marathon because in my twisted mind, which is also perfectly mathematically correct, two negatives make a positive. Right. So if I did sure. Well, if you can do it one day, way there, you can do it that way back. Yeah. So two marathons in a day, I didn't do a marathon. I'm fine. You know, that's what my logic was at that point. So I was doing it. And I got to about mile 40. I'm completely losing. I'm, you know, bonking and it's crazy. And one of my friends called me and she's having a nervous breakdown. So I spent the next two hours talking her off the ledge, basically, while I'm continuing to shuffle along because you're not running at that point, 40 plus miles and you're shuffling like a broken uh, pirate or whatever. And so hang up, I'm like 48 miles into it. I'm like, oh, only four miles. I can do this. So we went and finished. And afterwards, I'm drinking a beer in the shower and pissing blood down my leg and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? If I actually planned this better, I could go further. And so six months later, I actually <laughs> had proper hydration, proper nutrition, started at midnight, went, and I ended up doing 100 kilometers, so 62 and a half miles during the day. And wow. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And like afterwards, like my recovery was pretty easy. I'm like, okay, I could probably go do another five miles and I'm exhausted, but you know, I'm okay. And the next day I got a massage and stretched. And within three or four days, I was back running. So it's not like it demolished me completely. And so I'm like, cool, I'm going to stretch this out and I'm going to do 125. But when I was training for that, I broke my leg and oh, wow. twisted my ankle and separated my foot and all that. So I didn't oh. get to do any ultras last year because I was still in recovery mode. But it's a new year, so I'm going to probably do like the hamster wheel, which is a four, actually 3.97 mile loop. And you just do it around and around and around. And you do it at least 26 times. Wow. And do you travel for these marathons? Um, the Ragnars and those, I travel the two backyard ones. Um, I just ran around my neighborhood and went, you know, to the gym and stuff like that. So that was not an official race. We just, I just did it, but the hamster wheel is an actual official race up in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Wow. And I did like, I did like the Vermont 100, which is a hundred mile race team relay. So I did like 30 miles of that uh, in one day. So technically that's not a marathon either. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying desperately to avoid technically doing another marathon. Um, and so just to keep my word, uh, but, uh, like the hamster wheel is a hundred miles total. Um, there's other ones that are like, you know, 50 milers, things like that. I would definitely do. And what, what's the difference between like a regular marathon and ultra marathon? Anything over a marathon is technically an ultra. So like in my one a uh, bad ultra running advice group, which is not for advice. You should do the opposite of whatever they say. Um, <laughs> anything over 26, you know, there's a debate whether a 26.3 is an ultra marathon. Some people say yes, some people say no. So if 26.3 is a marathon, is not an ultra, there's 26.4, is 27. So it, basically anything right. over a full marathon is considered an ultra. So like I've done a Ragnar and then the next day done a half marathon. So I did like 50 miles in uh, two and a half days. So that was a, a sort of cool one. But for this, it's I'm just going to actually, you know, the standard uh, ultra marathon lengths are like 50 kilometers, 50 miles, 75 miles, 100 milers, things like that. A hundred kilometer is a big one. 
Uh, and what do you what do you listen to? What do you are you just running through your brain while you're doing this? Because I know you so, like to multitask. I like to multitask. So one of the things I did is uh, with one of them every hour I would switch who I was listening to. So one hour would be Black Sabbath. The next hour would be Dropkick Murphys. The next hour would be um, you know uh, Rolling Stones. So I did that for a while, and then I switched over to podcasts at, uh, about eight or ten hours into it. And listen, you know, I basically binged a couple of podcasts that had like, you know, 15, 20 episodes, did that. And I listened to an audio book. Then I went back to heavy metal music, you know. So one of the things, the biggest challenge with ultras is not your body. It's actually your mind. Mm -hmm. And so finding something to keep you amused, especially if you're ADHD, like I am, is mm -hmm. the big challenge. So, like, And if like, you're going in a circle for a hundred yeah, billion it, times. That, that's the worst because it's like, Oh, I've passed this tree 20 times. <laughs> and it's like, oh, look, and you know, there's that mean squirrel again. And oh yeah, there's the dead rat over there. And you just recognize these things. So you try and break it up if possible. But if you're doing an actual loop, uh, I remember before I did my first one, I listened to David Goggins talk about his first one, which was probably a mistake because he was talking about how badly it destroyed him. But he did a one mile loop in San Diego and did a hundred times. And so, you know, he was literally talking about going past the exact same, you know, spilled ice cream cone and, you know, things like that. And so I noticed that when I was doing these things. So that's one of the big things, because when you're training for these things, also, you got to remember, you're putting on some excessive miles. So when I start ramping up to do an ultra, I mean, three months earlier, I'm going out, I'm doing four or five Ks in a single day. Right. And mm -hmm. then... You know, a month beforehand, I'm literally going out and I'm running a marathon. It's not a marathon, though, because, you know, it's not a marathon. Uh, but I'll run, you know, uh, five or six, five milers during that one day. And so if you're like running in your neighborhood, you're like, I'm passing this thing again. And like the neighbors actually make fun of me. They're like, oh, <laughs> training, Joe. You know, it's like. Yeah, how many miles today which run number is this and so if you got good neighbors they'll make fun of you which was vitally important actually especially if they see you on these real long races when you're starting to lose your mind but having that support structure out there mm -hmm. even if it's very informal and just giving you a little bit of abuse is critical to doing any of these things and so ultra running and being a special needs parent are a lot of ways the same thing because like most there's a lot of mornings you don't want to get up and you don't want to go run it's cold it's wet it's nasty you know you're tired you worked a 15 hour day the day before or you know you had done a 10 mile training run the day before then worked a 12 hour day and you gotta get up and run five miles today that's exactly like being a special needs parent you know, it doesn't any matter parent. how you feel. Yeah, any parent, special needs lays a layer on it. And when I say special needs, I mean, my kids have um, mental special needs. But I've got friends who had kids with uh, diabetes. I've got a friend who's got a son who had a very rare form of brain cancer. And so special needs applies in multiple different ways. And all kids need their parents there. It's just some of them need extra attention in certain ways. Sure. And and this martial arts thing that you've done, when did you start with martial arts? So I started in martial arts when I was 12 years old, and it's been part of who I am forever. 
And mm-hmm. martial arts was actually one of the best things for my ADHD because I could focus and burn off energy, but also uh, the repetition of it. So, you know, whether it's doing a single punch over and over and over again, or you do a, uh, a kata, a pattern, a form, which is 20, 25 moves, and you do it and then you repeat it and then you do it and you repeat it. And so yeah. it's a chance to burn off energy, but it's also a chance to focus on certain things and you can then take those skills and apply them elsewhere. And running and martial arts are both forms of active meditation. So it helps with an overloaded brain, especially if you're doing very high intellectual work like you guys do also. I mean, you really stress out your brain one of the things that I recommend to my coaching clients is that you need to balance what you do. So if you work incredibly hard physically, like uh, you're a day laborer, you're a construction worker, things like that, then for your rest, you need something that stresses your mind, but relaxes your body. Mm. So if you're an intellectual professional and you know, you're coding or you're doing research or you're an attorney or you're a writer or things like that, and you're really using your intellectual capacities, you need to basically exhaust your body. Hmm. And so having that balance right. is critical to having overall health. Or to quote Mr. Miyagi, balance, Danielson, must have balance. <laughs> and yeah, and no, which... it's, it's, it's interesting, Joe, because I, I you know, we, we had a previous guest also talking about running. And yeah, I never thought of it that way. But really, I, I do find that when I, when I, I don't do marathons, I, I do 10 kilometers. So I don't do much. It takes me like an hour. I go at a very slow pace. But I do find that it's like a, a way for my mind to just kind of run loose. I don't have to be like focused on any one specific type of task. So I find that's very helpful. But I'm one of my curious. old business partners used to make yeah. fun of me because we'd be doing work. And I'd be like writing on the boards and everything. It's like, all right, I'm going out for a run. And I'd literally run around the block and run on in. I'd yeah. go over to the board and I'd write for another couple of minutes. Then I'd go out, I'd run around the block maybe two times. And the block was a half mile. So I'd go out and oh, yeah. do like, you know, a mile, mile and a half. I'd come back in for another couple of minutes. I'd just be like scribbling away furiously. <laughs> then I'd go on out for like five or eight miles. And then right. I'd come back and I'd have stuff to write. But it wasn't the furious pace because everything had been processed. So having that active meditation in some capacity and the physical effort, you know, quiets the brain. And so the loosely connected neurons where inspiration happens, Mm -hmm. those then become louder overall. And so that's why you get these brilliant ideas when you're sleeping or when you're like listening to music or you're taking a shower or running or things like that. And so I learned to play directly into that. Wow. That's funny. My my face is actually Candy Crush nowadays. Cool. I just work it. If I'm just working too hard, I take out Candy Crush and I do like ten levels. And you, and you shut your brain off. Yeah. And what happens is it, the subconscious is actually still functioning, but the neocortex is calm and it's no longer anxious. And all of a sudden, you walk over and there's your new idea that you needed. Yeah. Mm. So it's my reset. Absolutely. And for, so which kind of martial arts did you study? So I'm primarily traditional Chungakwan Taekwondo, which is the oldest forms of mm-hmm. Taekwondo. And I'm very old school. We still punch people. So I used to get in trouble in tournaments because I'd punch people in the head and I, I hit too hard. I got thrown out in multiple tournaments for that. I'm like, it's advanced black belt division. Come on. I thought we were fighting full contact. Um, but my master's best friend was the world judo champion. So I've cross-trained a lot in judo, done mm-hmm. American boxing. And 
again, being that sponge and polymath is I learn from anybody. So Wing Chun, um, you know, Jeet Kune Do, American boxing, fencing, sambo, lot, whatever I can be exposed to and learn from, bring it on. Wow, nice. Awesome. So, uh, so I'm curious, Joe, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many different uh, facets to you, but let, let's talk about your book. I mean, there's, you know, can you, can you tell our audience a bit about your book? What motivated you to write it? What it's about? Just a bit of a bit of a sneak so, preview. One of the reasons I wrote this book was partially therapy for myself going through my divorce. Hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people become very self-destructive in when they're going through the divorce. I had been in that place, you know, decades before uh, and everything after a failed relationship. I didn't want to go back. there. I did not want to be drinking. I did not want to be beating people up and hurting them because I'm too good at it. You know, I didn't want to be doing, going down the dark path. So instead I tried to go down the path of creation and writing is cathartic in a lot of ways. It allows you to process. It allows you to get things out. It allows you to explore the things that are really bothering you. Mm. And the same time that I was going through my divorce, I had this friend who was struggling with her addiction and, you know, she ended up having like, I think seven different affairs during that time period and was destroying herself and her kids. And, mm. you know, she was in a different country. So I couldn't even go, you know, try and interfere and help her out simultaneously. Everything else is going on with my kids and a bunch of other stuff. Um, the speakers bureau I had signed with went out of business. So, uh, you know, there was my investment portfolio because I had had a lot of startup companies I'd worked with went to zero. So like literally everything was being wiped out. The world was mm. going to hell in a handbasket. So the way that I approached that was either, you know, succumb to the darkness or fight it and try and create something. So I sat down and I started writing the book and the book's about 700 pages. I wrote in six months. Wow. I used in a really good habit stack writing every single day. And it's called Everyday Excellence. It's really a multivitamin for life in that we're all missing different components in our life. It could be you know, our physical health's not great, our mental health's not great, our relationship is not good. You know, uh, we could be doing better in business or be a better friend. So I wrote this book to be a daily reader like The Daily Stoic from Ryan Holiday or The Daily Laws by Robert Greene or any of these other ones so that every single day people can get just a little bit of information. This helps them in what I call human Kaizen, continuous personal improvement world. And so if we can get a little bit better every single day, eventually mm -hmm. over time, we're pretty damn good. And that's the reason for the cool nonlinear growth curve on the front actually is that compounded mm -hmm. consistent effort to become excellent. So every day there's a quote, and there's discussion around it. I hit lots of different parameters. But unlike a lot of the other ones, there's an action item. So instead of just thinking and saying, oh, that's nice, you actually have to do something related to the discussion from that day to improve yourself or the world around you. So like one of my favorite ones is smile at five people today. Hmm. Because when you smile, it causes your body to produce serotonin which is a happiness hormone, you decrease your cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, which creates unnatural aging and also bloating and um, inflammation of the joints and things like that. So when you smile, it biochemically changes and improves you. You also become a little bit more creative and intelligent for the next 10 to 15 minutes. And because of the mirror neurons located in your neocortex, if I smile at you, 
<laughs> See, you can't resist. You're smiling right. back at me. Right. So I have just made you smile. I've given you a gift of health. Mm. You are slightly better off now for the next couple of minutes because of that. And so like, that's my favorite action item in the entire book that I wrote is smile at five people today because you're literally creating these micro nodes of positivity that influence others and help them out. Now, some of the other action items are a little bit more difficult, like taking a piece of paper and writing down all the reasons you're pissed off at somebody. Hmm. And then saying out loud, I forgive you for X and crossing it out. I hmm. forgive you for Y and crossing that out. Okay, that takes a lot more effort, but right. it also has a really good results. Other ones are like using music to biohack. Um, music is very powerful. It actually lights up the entire brain the same way that exercise can. So listening to music can help make you more creative. It can uh, stimulate different connections so that you're making different uh, connections between different concepts and ideas so that it can enhance your creativity. It helps embed uh, memories better so you retain information better. So one of the things um, is find your song, that one song that gets you in go mode. So I did a major presentation earlier today before the major presentation. I did some biohacking, like doing the Superman pose or the Rocky pose uh, for a couple minutes beforehand because that actually stimulates the creation of testosterone. So it makes you more positive. There's um, actual research saying that if you do that for 30 seconds, you've got about 15% to 20% increase in your sales capability in that next meeting. So you close more deals. You're more confident. You're more successful. We actually did this with my running team and we were actually able to consistently, just by doing that pose for 30 seconds before running your leg, we shaved an average of 3% off of our times. Wow. So biohacks like that. So there's a whole bunch of those spread throughout it and you apply them as appropriate. So every single day I'm giving people a quote, a little bit of guidance, a little bit of insight around it, and then an action item that they can use to improve themselves for that day. And they can go through the entire year, then repeat the next year and repeat the next year so that they are on this process of continuous personal improvement. And if they only got 1% better every single week, by the end of the year, they're like 75% better than what they were. Yeah, that's awesome. I figured, did you did you read the book Atomic Habits? I think he talked yes. about that idea. Yes, yeah. that's by so, James Clear. And James I Clear. actually read that about six months before I started writing my book. And I applied a very strict habit stack wow. to writing this book. So I would get you. up every morning. I would brain dump what was in my head because as you sleep, you're processing information. When you move in and out of sleep, you're producing theta waves. That's the best time to program your brain and you're more creative and all that sort of stuff. But I would brain dump it. Then I would go and I would do a 20 minute run or walk. Then I would sit down and because I had the blood flowing, I was able to then write. I would write one page in the book one day. Then I would mm -hmm. go and I'd do my Taekwondo and I'd do all my forms. And I would sit down and I'd write at least one more page every single day. Hmm. So I was able to write two days every single morning and, uh, before I'd actually even really get running into my day because I was getting up at 4, 4.30 at that point to do this. And so by uh, quarter six in the morning, I'd worked out for 30 to 45 minutes. I had written 
two days in the book. So anywhere between two and four and a half pages. And I had uh, read my daily stoic or whatever else I was reading. So I'd fed my mind. I had taken care of my body. I had done some of my spiritual work and I had created. Mm. And then I'm taking a shower and boom, I was off to the office at 630 in the morning, every single day. Wow. That's how I was able to write a 700 page book in under six months. Unbelievable. So habit stacking allows you to be able to insert and create good habits and literally stack them one on top of each other. And then he doesn't talk about, but there's a concept called habit cracking. Because if you've got an instigating event that causes you to do something like, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, in his book, he talks about this woman who would smoke when she was horseback riding. That was the triggering event. So if you Mm -hmm. remove the triggering event or triggering person, then you can break a habit a lot easier. Hmm. So if you got that buddy who always, you know, leads you out to trouble, maybe you need to spend less time with them because then you're doing less bad things. You know, if um, you eat too much junk food, eliminating the junk food from the house is one way to do that. So one of my friends who's going through alcohol rehab, we talked about this as a habit cracking technique. Um, Another thing is uh, I was working with some clients who had PTSD, former military guys, and I was working with another consultant with them. Uh, an actual uh, former commander for him. And this guy had really bad PTSD and he'd always sit in this one chair looking at the same stuff on the wall and get depressed. So the first thing that we did is we rearranged all the stuff on his wall to change the visual inputs so that Mm -hmm. it would get different stimulation. Then we took and burned his chair. Because if he's sitting in the chair and getting depressed, if he can't sit in the chair, then logically he can't get depressed. This is why Botox works. You know, they give people Botox so that they're smiling. They actually reduce the incidences of depression around. Wow. Hmm. So. uh, Yeah, I actually heard a friend of mine that I guess they did habit replacing, trigger replacing. So it's like anytime she take out a black one and you put it in a yellow. Right. So anytime she wanted, you know, candy, she would replace it with an apple. And And this is why we see a lot of alcoholics actually swap, you know, uh, or addicts swap their addiction for religion or exercise, which are, you know, Mm -hmm. positive stress, use stress as opposed to de-stress for them. And yes, you can go too far with it, like running ultra marathons like I do, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's better than saying they're smoking crack. But, But Joe, I have a question. It's not always easy to remove every triggering um, item like let's let's say somebody like, like your your like your ex wife triggers that you. That was my question. Remove that her. was my question. Right. So <laughs> I, I know a guy. <laughs> no, but, you can't do that. That's wrong. Right. So what would you call? I think so. I think I heard because you, you do. It sounds like you 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 work as a coach. Uh, it's part of what you do, right? Or is, yes, I, I do a lot of right? coaching with. Right. And so what would you so, coach your client who who asks you about that? You know, like how do I remove that trigger? So. You know, if you can't remove the trigger completely, it's um, Ellis's ABC model. You have an activating event, you have a belief system, and from that you have a consequence. And so in that B, there's multiple different paths that you can take. So the default, the easy one, the heuristic, because we're lazy as human beings, is you do whatever triggers you. So what you need to do is you need to strengthen the mind and the decision-making beforehand. So this is why you do hard things when you don't have to like go run in the rain. I hate running in the rain and get squishy feet. It's gross. And it's nasty. And it's just the worst, but I do it because it makes me better for other times, exposing yourself to the things that could get you upset 
like if you've got a fear of spiders, one of the things you need to do is look at spiders. Mm. Okay, so having a safe space, that's actually the opposite of what you do. Instead of having a safe space, you need to have a strong space where you get stronger beforehand. So knowing, okay, if, when I'm interacting with my ex-spouse, she's probably going to do X because she has a history of doing this. This is the way that she is. She's not going to change, but I can be the bigger person. I can change. She's going to do this. And my typical response is X. You know, I'm going to want to get angry. I'm going to want to, you know, roll my eyes or whatever, which is just going to cause problems. So doing the pre-playing, this is what I'm going to do. And you role play it in some ways. So I role play with uh, business people and salespeople, what they should be saying to their potential client. And we do this as a almost like a live fire exercise like they do in the military or controlled uh, fighting in martial arts. So, mm -hmm. that, okay, you know, you can do it at half speed, three-quarter speed. I'm not going to blast you as one of my students, even though I could completely do that. You do the same sort of thing and you practice, you role play it beforehand so that when you're in that situation, it's not the first or fifth time and you're not move, having an emotional reaction. You are having a controlled response so mm -hmm. if i go into a situation and i say okay i know she is going to do x she's going to try and get me in a fight she's going to like you know bring up this she's going to do this i need to make sure that i don't do that mm. okay and i practice it and i talk it out with other people beforehand she's going to do x i need to make sure i can prepare against that and so uh, a lot of psychologists have shown that if you pre-play things and then replay them in reality, you're better able to do it. So it doesn't matter if it's like sinking a golf putt, doing the free throw, physical activities like that. They found that high-level athletes, if they just practice it in their mind, that scenario over and Visual, over again. Visualizing it, essentially. Visualizing it, right. And as a martial artist, I did this. You know, I won a tournament with the exact same technique. I visualized it for, for six months. We need mm -hmm. to do that here but there's all this emotion around it and this constraint mm. and so we need to try and peel that emotion away in the practice yes and then actually expose ourselves to some of that emotion so that there's low levels of the emotion and we're still being comfortable and practicing it at this level so that when it's actually at this level in a real life scenario it's like all right it's not that much more i can deal with it I won't mm -hmm. succumb i won't give in to the tricks i won't be brought down to their level i won't give in I'm still mm -hmm. going to do X. This is my plan. I'm going to do X. I'm going to do X. I'm going to do X. And then little things that you can do like uh, rubber band around the wrist uh -huh. and snap, snap, snap. So little things like that to change the feedback mechanism so that you can be able to react or respond properly. So in um, aerial combat, it's called the OODA loop, the decision loop. So you know that's going to happen. You've seen it. You've watched it happen before you experienced it. So mm. you need to be able to break that feedback loop on your own. And so practice, awareness, um, talking it through, relieving some of the underlying issues because a lot of that is from deep-seated trauma or things that we've gone through before. Anything that you can do to make it so that you don't get sucked in again and again and again. So that's a great question. Thank you. That was a great answer. Thank you. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully uh, there was something in there that people could take away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing we like to talk about on the podcast, because we're trying to support guys that are going to divorce, thinking about divorce. Um, and, you know, there's a common thread of figuring out something to latch on to, to get through that whole period. And I understand your, your ordeal took a lot 
you know, uh, quite some time. What got you through that period of, you know, uh, however, however easier, whoever, you know, initiated it, it's still not an easy process. Literally walked in and said, I want a divorce. I want you out of the house for the next week. Mm. I want you in counseling. I want you to do these other things. And then we'll talk. I went and I did all that and her mind had already been made up. So that's what my scenario was for this. So it was dark. It was, I mean, we were, we had COVID going on. This was early, early stage COVID. Um, you know, so my kids were struggling because of everything with school. There was no martial arts to be able to do. There's no running. There's no Cub Scouts. My businesses were starting to implode because of uh, what was going on with COVID. I mean, obviously there's no uh, speaking. There's no conventions to attend. If there's no conventions, you can't get paid to speak. So right. there was all this stuff happening simultaneously. So um, when I was going to counseling, they wanted to talk about my coping mechanism. So they wanted to talk about how much did I drink. I drink a little bit now. I mean, I'm Irish I'm, and I'm German, but I really don't drink that much. I'll have a couple of beers. And, mm. and you know, I don't even do that much. I have to earn them. You know, my diet's pretty good. I don't eat very much fried food, even though I love donuts and I occasionally splurge. When I splurge, I mean, I splurge like I'll eat a dozen donuts in a day. So, but you know, that's uh, once a month, once every six weeks. You know, I read, I write, I meditate. I'm active in my faith. Um, I have good social connections. I'm taking care of others. So, when they were talking with me, they're like, "You literally have the most powerful, you know, coping mechanisms and structures we've ever seen." Well, let's talk about the stress that you're under in your life. And so, I talked about the businesses and you know, my kids and all those other things. Okay, you need these things because you got more stress than basically anybody else going on in your life. Mm. So um, by doing these difficult things well before you get into the divorce, then it makes it easier. But if for your listeners who are in the divorce process, do the things that take care of you and make you better. Take care of your health, eat a good diet, have strong relationships and be ready and willing to talk to people, whether it's male friends, female friends, relatives, mm-hmm. you know, faith leaders, uh, professionals, talk to people and get the feedback that you need and be around people that want the best for you. Because you got to remember, a friend is going to listen to your bullshit, tell you it's bullshit, listen to it it's more, occasionally kick your ass or give you the hug. So they want to see the best version of you. That's not an enabler. Enabler drives you to the bar to get a drink if you're having problems and we'll stand back and we'll like make you want to feel good in the moment You're, yeah. a real friend will want you to be better overall they want to see the best possible version of you so they need to be there to help get you through it um also i had some friends who had been divorced previously both male and female so a couple mm-hmm. years ahead so i was actually there for them when they were going through their divorce i didn't realize how much i'd helped them out i was just being my friend um, and so they reached out and helped get me through too. So having almost like a mentor through it mm. is very important. Same way that I've got a mentor in the autism world. I got a buddy whose uh, son is about four or five years older than mine. So he was able to give me a lot of early guidance and advice. And I could still call him up and say, dude, I'm losing it. He'd be like, don't lose it. Let me help you out. Let's talk about it. So having those people that you can connect with to be strong for you when you need it. Like my friend that was having freak out during my ultra marathon, you know, I focused on helping them mm-hmm. and I was able to get another uh, eight, 10 miles in without realizing it. So my mom, the nun always said, if you're having a bad day, help somebody else out, nice. but you know, have those friends who are there to help you out because you're going to have those really bad days. 
different point. So, so important. That's great. Um, and then- but I don't you know, know if I answered your question. I apologize. No, I did. Definitely. Yeah, you 100%. Um, and then uh, another thing we like to do here, you know, the Two Dad to Quit podcast is for you to share one of your Two Dad to Quit moments when you felt the proudest as a dad and something happened and you would just look back and you, you know, you pulled up your, your chin up higher and you're like, man, I am the dad. Okay. I got two examples. So, uh, from my two younger sons. So last summer we went down to the family cabin, uh, to help my father out. My father's in his early eighties and this cabin's up on the top of the mountain and it's got a septic tank and leach field and all that. And so we had to dig up the septic tank. Now this hasn't been dug up since I was a little kid. So 40 years. Now yeah, it's down about a foot and it's under all these rocks and there's roots, you know, growing all over the place. So, and we didn't know where it was either. So we had to dig up a whole big section. So we hand dug for about 13 hours that day. Wow. And my wow. then 14 year old dug for like five or six hard hours. Like swing a pickaxe really went to town, really did a good job. And when we finally, we're finally all done, my dad is like, make sure you tell middle one, you know, that he did a really good job. And we're driving home and I gave him chocolate milk because that's the bribe that we always give my kids. <laughs> and he looked right at me. And he's like, I worked like a Templin today. I'm nice. like, yes, you did. So wow. that was one. The other one was um, my youngest one had been up to Boy Scout camp in the fall. And, you know, it was a little cool and everything. They stayed in the tents and everything. So I pick him up to bring him home. And he always, after Boy Scout camp, wants to stop and eat and go have breakfast. So we stopped at um, Denny's, I think it was. And uh, we're there waiting to get seated and they've got a collection bin there for no kid goes hungry. Okay, you know, collecting money for this. And he looks around, makes sure nobody sees him, reaches into his pocket, pulls out all his money and puts it in. Wow. But he made sure nobody saw him. So he was doing an act of charity, but it wasn't for any public recognition or anything like that. It was because it was the right thing to do. So Amazing. those two things, those are, you know, those are some of the high points. It's like, all right, my job here is done. Beautiful. Amazing. That's amazing. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, it was amazing. And yes, thank you. Joe. You're clearly just getting started. And yes. uh, that that list of accomplishments is going to grow immensely. We have no doubt, um, and we'll definitely be following and staying in touch. And you know, when the next book comes around, we'd love to have you on again because uh, yeah. I know it's in there. Um, and um, before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that you can find us at twodadtoquit.com. Please reach out. We want to share your story. Share your website with other people. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We want to hear your comments. We started a Two Dad to Quit Clips channel on YouTube. Uh, so if all of this is too much for you, go over there. You'll get it in bits and pieces. Uh, but really, we want, to, we want to help as many people as possible. So please do not be shy. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. Available twodadtoquit.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.